It's Policing Matters on PoliceOne.com, and I'm your host, Jim Dudley. Well, welcome back. Thanks for clicking in. If you take a look at the FBI report on mass shootings from the years 2000 to 2018, you will find that in 277 incidents, there were 2,423 casualties, including 1,546 wounded and 877 deaths. We've seen spikes in mass shootings recently already in 2021. What's the answer? How can we limit or stop the increasing number of mass shooters? Do we create more gun laws? Well, Illinois has strict gun laws, and yet the number of homicide rates are among the highest every year, especially in the Chicago area. Do we limit access to the mentally ill? How do we define mental illness? What about those who have not been diagnosed? Well, Catherine Schweit is a lawyer and former FBI executive who currently teaches law classes at DePaul and Webster Universities. She spent 20 years with the FBI, and prior to that post, she was a prosecutor in Chicago. After the Sandy Hook massacre, she was assigned to the head of the FBI's active shooter program, where she stayed for five years. She authored FBI's seminal research, a study of 160 active shooter incidents in the United States from 2000 to 2013. And through her extensive experience, Catherine has become an expert in active shooters, mass shootings, and uh, security policies and procedures. She currently owns Schweit Consulting, LLC, providing leadership counseling, security advice, and safety training to hospitals, businesses, religious organizations, educators, and government clients. She is the author of the book, Stop the Killing, How to End the Mass Shooting Crisis. Well, that is a tall task, and we can't wait to hear what you're going to say. Welcome to Policing Matters, Dr. Katherine Schweit. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. I appreciate you taking the time to uh, listen to my points of view, and hopefully I can provide your listeners with a little bit of insight. I know you've got a really sophisticated group uh, of listeners, so I'm excited about this. Yeah, so before we get started, can you give me and the audience... um, an idea, get us on the same page, if you will, with the definitions, the the active shooter versus mass shooter. Oh, great question. Because that is the question right now. On, and when it comes to research, right? Um, active shooter, as, uh, as your audience likely uh, may know, is, is defined by the federal government, uh, DHS, FBI, all the three letter groups, as an individual actively engaged in killing or attempting to kill people in a populated area. So, you know, the essential elements to that are that it's in a populated area, meaning potentially civilians could be injured who are unengaged, and that it's an attempting kill or killing. So it's the threat itself. And and so it's different than a mass shooting, which mass shooting, first of all, has no federal definition. Um, Mass killing does under federal law, three or more killed, but mass shooting has no definition. So researchers, and actually a lot of us have been working, I've been working with academics and uh, practitioners uh, as we work to get to an exact kind of definition for mass shooting that really will include things that are, um, uh, as you know, domestic situations and gangs and other kinds of violence where it's really just an individual uh, discharging a firearm with premeditation to kill a number of people. And what that number is, We know it's more than two, but we haven't quite come up with that exact number, although researchers generally use three or four to have a cutoff on when they're doing the research. 
So as an active FBI agent, what was your involvement in tracking the active shooters? Uh, it, I would venture to say that with a multitude of databases that track mass shootings, um, both government, non-governmental, and uh, for-profit, non-profit, I like to use the FBI UCR database, but why do we have so many different numbers coming from all of these other places? Is there one reliable collection source? Well, actually, that's exactly the problem that we faced after the Sandy Hook massacre. Um, I had been put in charge of and given, uh, given a lot of tax dollars to kind of find answers to that question. So, of course, I reached out to our people uh, who keep the stats on uniform crimes in our criminal, criminal division. And we were looking for different ways to find that data within our own data. And what we found is that the, the and the, and the Bureau is, uh, and the FBI is working on that now, you know, they've, they've come up with new ways to track their data and put their data together so that it's more incident related. But they were really tracking data so that if you had, uh, initially, for a long time, the FBI would track its data and say, if you had an incident that occurred at a bank, you'd have a bank robbery and that would be one tick mark in the uniform crime stats about bank robberies. But if there was a shooting at the bank robbery, someplace else there'd be another tick mark about a person killed. And it wouldn't necessarily cross over. And then if there were, you know, several, uh, the car crashed into the, and people were arrested for it, was involved in drugs, then it's all these tick marks and all these different databases and none of them crossing over. And after Sandy Hook, that's exactly what we faced. No uniform system used by researchers no uniform systems used uh, by, uh, by the government uh, agencies. And I'll just add on top of that, that we weren't looking for um, all shootings and all killings and all deaths and all threats. We were looking for this weird, vexing subset of types of incidents that really were these public shootings, think about Aurora and Columbine and Texas Towers and San Ysidro's McDonald's, these very vexing public shootings and saying, who is doing this and why? And that's really why we came up with such different numbers, such unique numbers that now I think uh, people, uh, you know, researchers are recognizing we really did get to that, that database uh, baseline data that, that researchers are using now and they rely on all the time. So the data is more reliable now, as, as good as we can get. Well, and I'll tell you, I'll tell you why it is, especially because you're who you are, Jim. Uh, the the information that the FBI used for their research was based on police reports, and nobody else is able to pull police reports. But what we did, and 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 what I I said to my team is, look, if we can go out and ask our agents to go out personally to the officers and the departments that worked on these cases and get these kind of 10 or 12 data points. We don't need their whole reports and all the details, but we need these data points on every single shooting. And we went out one by one on 250 or so, and then we brought those that data back in and sat together. And we knew we had accurate data, not some supposition, because some neighbor said, and we heard, and then also somebody gets shot at a scene and they die later, those numbers count. So we wanted to get the most accurate information we could. So I think we're, we're pretty good. And I think the Bureau has stuck with that. And so now they have a good solid 20 years of data on active Nice, shooter. nice. Yeah, I mean, the data is important, right? We're gonna do some epidemiology and go back to the root cause of the shooting, the motivation, the 
access to firearms and mental illness and all that other stuff. I want to ask you about your book. I'm going to, I'm going to wait till um, after the break, because right now, so far, the national debate seems to land on two central issues. One is gun laws and the other being the mentally ill. And there's a dichotomy of two sets of people on opposite sides, on both sides, on both issues. And so we talk about, uh, you know, people saying uh, we want strict gun laws, but we've seen them not be so efficient. And then we've seen people want uh, to limit access to the mentally ill, but both NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, and the NRA are both against creating a new list or a new uh, category of people uh, for fear that uh, they may not seek treatment because of such a list. So um, what have you seen in your background of the biology of the, ma the mass or active shooters? Are, are you seeing trends in mental illness or are you seeing uh, firearms as being the issue? So, I mean, I love that you asked that question, is it, is it this or it's that? And of course the answer is it's all of those things, right? I mean, that's, that's the frightening part that we know. Um, and the vexing difficulty is that people really, we all innately want to kind of buttonhole and pick out one idea or one reason so we can fix that reason, right? That's why we want one reason. But you, you raise what we know are some of the most preeminent concerns. Uh, I will, I mean, I'll address briefly, you mentioned uh, about mental health and I can just address briefly uh, some of the things that you spoke about are you spot on. Um, so let me say this about uh, mental health. The, after the FBI, after we did our research on the 160 active shooter incidents, uh, we took that police those police records and we provided them, this was the intent was in the FBI the whole time to do a two part study. So the first part was my study on 100 active shooter incidents. The second part was a study that our behavioral experts did on 63 of those shooters um, because they were able to get enough information specifically about those particular shooters. And one of the things that they found is that every shooter and every killer involved had four to five, what they call stressors, four or five things in their life that were stressing them out to the point that they, that, you know, there's kind of this concept of why did this person who become a brittle individual and commit this heinous crime? Because they were under all these stressors, all these different things. And at the top of that list, mental health issues, hmm. not, not, not behavioral, uh, you know, um, mental health where you're worried that somebody is getting care for some highly critical uh, situation, but really things that when they say mental health and the FBI found um, like 60% of those people had mental health as one of their stressors, those mm. things very often were anxiety. Uh, they, weren't, they weren't necessarily what you think of as a more severe diagnosed mental health challenge, which I tell you that because, you know, the National Council on Behavioral Health has said, um, please don't use this as a predictor. Please don't mm. use mental health as a predictor because the vast majority of, right, the, the one half of the 1% of the 1,000th percent, and so many people need to get mental health care for the most, you know, major and minor things. And if they're at all spooked out uh, uh, and away from it, then we're gonna have bigger problems. So, so using mental health as a predictor 
is bad if it makes people not get mental health care because mm -hmm. they're worried about getting their clearances, for instance, and things like that. It's that whole concept of we have to destigmatize getting good mental health care. Plus, we also know that a lot of people who have had, uh, we identify as somebody who has mental health concerns, they don't get any mental health treatment. So mm -hmm. they're not identified as a person who's had mental health treatment. So not mental health, absolutely a factor, not necessarily a good predictive factor. That, that's kind of where I land on mental health. Sure. Uh, guns, a whole different issue, right? Guns are, uh, I teach a, uh, at, at DePaul uh, University, uh, at the law school, I teach a class on the culture of the Second Amendment. So uh, I, I have guns all over in my head about where we have it, why we have it, and how people feel about it. And, and particularly for uh, uh, law enforcement, you know, I, I answer the same question that probably a lot of people do when they say, um, we should just get rid of all the guns, which every one of us has heard a million times. Right. And, um, and, and as I said to somebody recently, you know, I'm not against guns, I'm against killing. Uh, but that said, I think that there are, uh, we're in the process now, I think of having to, uh, as a country, uh, kind of come to grips with, uh, are there things, because we do have, uh, you know, 300, 400 million guns in the United States, do we need to put into place some, uh, some check systems? Um, and there are a slew of those uh, on guns and, and different people, you know, support different ones, but, you know, red flag laws and, uh, you know, trigger locks and more accountability for uh, parents who let their kids get access to guns. I mean, most of the guns mm -hmm. in these instances are, are legally purchased, legally owned. I want to get into some some more measurements of active shooters, but first I'd like to take a moment and thank our sponsor. Policeone.com is the number one resource for your up-to-the-minute law enforcement news, training, and incident analysis. Our mission is to provide you with the information you need to better protect your communities and your safety. Becoming a Police One member is quick, easy, and free. Once registered, you will receive access to secure law enforcement-only training and video tips, articles and sections, and a subscription to our award-winning law enforcement newsletters. Go to policeone.com forward slash registration to sign up today. That's policeone, the number one, dot com forward slash registration. And we are back and I'm speaking to Dr. Catherine Schweit, a former FBI special agent executive and author of Stop the Killing, How to End the Mass Shooting Crisis. And Dr. Schweit, so oftentimes when we talk about um, the variables, the, the mental health or the condition of the shooter or um, whether the guns were legal or illegal or how many rounds... Uh, are we accurate in our measurements of active shooters? If the FBI defines a mass shooting as requiring three or more casualties, are we lumping them in with the domestic violence disputes or someone who carefully plans, rents two suites of a high-level hotel, a high-rise, and starts spraying an outdoor concert with thousands and thousands of rounds? I mean, aren't we comparing apples to oranges sometimes? You know, uh, that's a great question, and I'm really glad you asked that, because I think it depends on what question you're trying to find uh, an answer to, right? So if we're looking for prevention methods, and what are the prevention methods? 
for somebody who wants to go out in public and do these killings. Okay, so dot, 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 think about that. When we were speaking uh, amongst ourselves at the FBI and with our, we had, I actually uh, was fortunate enough to bring in uh, uh, law enforcement, local law enforcement from Minneapolis and California, Texas, and they came in, worked on my team for nine months, fantastic groups of people, group of people. And so I really had that very great local perspective all the time who were questioning us. One of the things that we talked about was if you are trying to identify who's going to do this, uh, why we're going to, why it, why it's going to do, why, why this is going to happen. What are we trying to, what are we trying to tell the public? How are we trying to help the public? Or are we trying to help law enforcement? So we researched active shooter incidents because we wanted to be able to focus on prevention and, and, and help the law enforcement uh, community who is always the last line of defense find answers when people come to them and say, this neighbor of mine is doing X, this, this person I work with is doing Y. A better understanding the behaviors of concern gives us the prevention capabilities. Certainly, certainly somebody does something afterwards and a person shooting in a high rise is not the same as a person shooting in a house. But when you talk about predictors, we don't necessarily need to research why a shoot goes bad in a drug house. We don't need to research why that particular murder-suicide occurred with three or four children in the house because mm -hmm. it was a domestic situation. We, the, you look at those individual situations. So when the FBI, when we made the decision at the FBI to do this research, what we wanted to do was to exclude things that we already did a, a lot of research on, that, the, that the, as, a, as a community, uh, academia and law enforcement had done a lot of research on. We know a lot about gun, uh, about gun deaths uh, and gun violence in gangs. We know a lot about gun violence in drugs. We know about a lot of gun violence when it comes to domestic violence and even to some extent, um, even to some extent, uh, workplace violence. But what we found is that when we when we dissected and we pulled out just these particular incidents, we found some fascinating patterns. So, for example. Um, when you look at specific data, and uh, in, in our research, we found that uh, probably 10% of the time, when a shooter came into this kind of scene, 10% of the time, an unarmed civilian disarmed the shooter. 10% of the time. We never would see that if we were pooling in the data with uh, domestic violence and guns and gangs and drugs, right? right we wouldn't right. see that. So that, though that was part, part of the help. We also, part of the great data research that, that comes out when you look at the right numbers. We also found that half of the shootings occur in places of, uh, in, in the workforce, that 25% that of them occur in places uh, of educational places, schools and stuff. We found amongst those two, about those two groups, when your shooter is shooting at a middle school or a high school, or your shooter is in a place of business that is closed to the public, like a shipping facility, a packing facility, a law office. When the shooter, when the killer is from a closed place of business that the public doesn't transit, or a middle school or a high school, the shooter's already inside. Shooter's hmm. from there. So when you look at whether or not you should put up more security, 
locks and alarms, magnetometers. If your shooter's already inside, they already have a badge access, less, more concern about prevention, less concern about putting people in, in, in a workforce uh, environment that's like a prison. Yeah. So that's where the numbers helped. Um, that's where the numbers helped us to dissect and why we thought it was valuable to do that. Yeah, and that was certainly the case in Sandy Hook when it was the son of, of a teacher, right? And the administrators. Well, she wasn't a teacher. Uh, he was, uh, she wasn't working at that school. He had gone to that school at Sandy Hook, though. Oh, he and, went to the and, school. Yeah, and they actually, at Sandy Hook, most people, I think, don't recognize or don't recall. But as, as horrific as that situation was, those um, kids, there were about 550 people in the school at the time, 82 people uh, working there at the time. And those um, those people had just had those, even including the students, had had active shooter training just a few weeks before. Wow. And so it wasn't it wasn't unknown. And that was back in, in December 14th, 2012. And and there if you look at the people who survived that shooting, you, there is heroic story after heroic story after heroic story mm. of people who properly barricaded themselves, who did the hide part of run, hide, fight and right. did that lockdown. And, and then there were also uh, children who survived because they ran out of a classroom. Yeah, and, they, yeah. and that's something that, you know, helped to validate our findings that it is important to teach run, hide, fight. Not because mm -hmm. you want people to do everything and you want kindergartners to go running out of a building. But we know that first graders ran out of a room and they're alive today because of it. Right. Survivability. So, okay, your book is out. and. We want to know the answer. You, the book title is How to End the Mass Shooting Crisis. So uh, how do we stop mass shootings in America? I think we do more uh, conversations about uh, dispelling the myths, like mm. the idea that these are all uh, young uh, kids in their parents' basement playing video games. Um, and that when, in fact, the data shows us that the bigger risk is uh, between the ages of 30 and 40. The bigger risk is that kid's dad upstairs in the living room who's frustrated at work. So first of all, we have to bust the myths. That's really why I wrote the book. There, I mean, that's the first chapter is like myth busting, basically. And, and then we have to, from there, we have to be on the same page about definitions and the same page about numbers. You know, I think um, I, I would say this to this audience uh, and maybe not to others, but I think we have to look realistically and individualistically in terms of states and local communities about what we can do um, in terms of uh, kind of some potential um, regulations that might uh, help in the gun world. I'm not, you know, as much as I know about guns and even though I teach a class in that, I'm not advocating one way or another specifically, and, but I, I will say that I think we need to, we need to do, a, we've done a, a decimation, I think of ATF, and when they're doing you know, firearm searches on paper, uh, mm -hmm. that's uh, absurd in this day and age, the fact that their data is, uh, isn't uh, in a database and the fact that we can't track, ATF can't track uh, very easily uh, gun dealers uh, because, uh, you know, you can go from store to store to store to try to buy your, buy your guns. So there's there's a lot of spots where I think if we tighten up. So the answer to your question, uh, which I, it seemed like I was avoiding, but I'm really not, I swear, Jim, is <laughs> the answer to your question is that uh, this is uh, death by a thousand cuts. We're only sure. going to get rid of this if we stop saying 
uh, when you and I speak and, and we're having a beer, if I say it's all about mental health and you say, no, it's all about guns. And the next person says it's all about the ATF. And the next person says it's all about ghost guns. And the next person says it's all about suicide and domestic. Right. My list of folders on my data for this for this subject area is, is I, I probably have 40 folders and they're all on different subjects because it is death by a thousand cuts. We're only going to get there. We're only going to kill this trauma in the United States. If we, if you think about what you can do, whether that's training somebody, taking care of your employees, you know, we, all these shootings that occur in places of business close to the public, uh, we had, we had to, a, a third of those shootings occur where the, the employee was fired that day or the day before what is happening in the HR departments. So everybody's got to figure out what they can do. And that's really why I put the book together. It's like, there's a section on books, there's a section on schools, there's a section on churches. I, I'm so passionate about this that I, I wrote my entire training curriculum for Run, Hide, Fight and put it in the book. I'll just give it away. I don't care how to train yeah. children. It's there. We just, everybody yeah. just has to be, everybody has to be invested in it. And right now they're just not. Right now, right. it's never again. Well, don't, well, don't give then it. Goes don't away. give it all away right now. You want people to buy the book, so <laughs> don't, don't, don't spill all the beans. So, but, but what has been the feedback been like? Have you heard from DOJ or members of Congress saying, "Hey, we help us implement these things"? Are you going to put the band back together? I volunteer. Oh. All Let's right, do it. You're in. I like it. Um, I think that uh, we have had. Um, I think the response so far has been fantastic on the book. And I would say the nice part about that is that it's, uh, it's people still in the business, uh, people who are working in, in consulting now who I know uh, can be part of that band and, 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 and make it happen. And, uh, I, you know, I think that the, like I said, that there are a lot of people talking about the gun issue and I think that clouds everything. So, mm. uh, so we'll see. Um, I mean, I think it clouds it only because, you know, we don't talk about anything else. So. Yeah, and I don't know if, if we're going to see immediate benefits. I mean, with the reform movement, you know, people are getting out of jail quicker. Right. Um, you know, the chronic recidivists are not staying in jail for long terms. Like, you know, as harsh as some of the 1994 uh, you know, crime laws were, uh, now with the reform and COVID, we're letting, you know, these mass numbers of people who probably should be in prison out. And uh, it's not unusual to see someone involved in a gun-related crime who's out early from a gun-related crime. So, yeah. and you know, I have a, a very good friends. I taught uh, I taught uh, tr Chicago Police Department as part of my work over at DePaul, and I completely agree with you about that. The gun issue is a bigger issue, um, and uh, you know, my I bleed for my law enforcement partners uh, who are particularly my uh, my personal friends in Chicago who are dealing with what they struggle with every day. And, and I think this subset of what I was working on, I continue to work on, is just that. It is just a subset of the gun issue. Um, and the and it's not, and I say gun issue because that's the way somebody else says it, and I don't mean that. What I mean is the violence issue. Sure. Um, it's, it's a violence issue. And a lot of the other uh, matters about, like you said, uh, people getting out of jail and um, and getting bonded out, you know, on an I bond right away on things like that. Um, I get that. I was a prosecutor in Chicago. Um, so that's a kind of a different issue. These shooters and these mass shooting situations, I think one of the things that makes it so challenging is 
These, uh, these uh, gentlemen, primarily gentlemen, that's the only data set we really have a, a clear demographic on is that they're primarily men, 98% um, I think. Um, they don't have bad criminal histories. They may have, mm. they have some criminal history, but they don't have the kind of criminal history you think about that puts people in jail. Mm. Um, you know, they, they have anger issues and, and court orders about uh, domestic violence situations. And, you know, they may have had brushes with the law, but, uh, you know, we're not going to find our mass shooters necessarily by looking at uh, gun violence. And I think right. that's a, an important message that uh, probably uh, even I'm just going to tell you, I never phrased it that way before. But see, you're good at this. So you pulled that out of me. <laughs> Great. Well, I can't wait to read the book. Uh, how can our listeners find it? Oh, you know, the easiest way is to uh, truthfully, the easiest way is to uh, pop onto my website, katherineschweit.com. So I, if you can spell my name, you can find me, K-A-T-H-E-R-I-N-E, -E, the old-fashioned way, S-C-H-W-E-I-T.com. And uh, on the Buy the Book link, uh, there's a link to every place where you can buy the book. But if you sign, I'll give you this hint. If you sign up for my newsletter, you can get a, a substantial discount I negotiated with the publisher. So sign nice. up for the newsletter and you'll see the discount code. I'm doing it. Well, thank you so much for taking time and talking about this really important issue and shedding light on research and data collection. And um, listeners, uh, we're not going to give you the, the you know, we're not going to talk about a novel and, and tell you who killed who at the end. So buy the book and uh, see how you can lend a hand in stopping mass shootings in America. Thanks again for listening. Thank you so much, Dr. Schweit. Thank you so much for the time and thanks for sharing the message. It's so important. It is. And to our listeners, thanks again for listening. I hope you found today's show interesting. Let me know what you think. Are we on the right track to reduce mass shootings in America? Do you have an opinion? Do you have some ideas? Uh, let us know. You can get in touch with me or someone from the Policing Matters team at policingmatters at police1.com policing matters at police one one drop us a note share your ideas suggestions or just say hello rate us on apple podcast give us five stars if you like the show it really helps us out if you don't like the show don't rate us that's my advice thanks again for listening stay safe check back in soon i'm jim dudley